Last week, we decided that we were going to take a, a break, and we were going to uh, jump into a new series, and I decided this um, a few hours before service, <laughs> because I was like, you know what, Matthew is a great book, and we've been in it for uh, over a year and a half, and I decided to take a break on it, because there is this issue that is going on that I was thinking about, and maybe you're thinking about too, and so let me see if this resonates with you at all, is the thing that keeps going through my mind is that I wake up on a pretty regular basis, and I go, what are you doing with your life, right? I don't know if you've had this thought, maybe I'm the only one, but I have this consistent fear that I'm wasting my life. I get up all the time and I go, Cody, when are you gonna do something significant? Like, when are you going to actually succeed at something? When are you going to, am I the only one I see blank stares? You guys are all killing it in life? All right, maybe you guys can teach tonight then, huh? No, you're not, I know you, okay. But uh, there's other days where um, not only am I asking, what am I doing with my life, and, and am I accomplishing anything, and am I ever going to you know, reach the dreams that I think I have for myself, but there's a lot of days on, on this journey in which I just want to quit. That's usually Monday. Monday morning in particular, um, I want to quit. I don't ever want to do ministry again. I don't want to see my kids. Oh, I love them, but I don't want to see you right now. And, uh, and, and there's a pretty consistent theme that I just I want to just not do anything anymore. I want to be on permanent vacation. Um, I think that's called retirement. But I just, I'm done. And, um, and that might be a little bit dramatic, but let's, let's, let's like kind of reverse a little bit because this is where the series is heading as we're talking about where are we going in life? All of us, where are we heading? And, and we're all heading in different directions, but hopefully we're heading in some similar directions as well, especially if we call ourselves Christians. And so this idea, and I'm going to recap a little bit, this idea of where we are going, this mental picture that we have of our preferred future is called a vision. And so all of us have a vision for our life. Some of us are more detailed in that vision, but all of us can explain probably what we want our future world to look like. So different arenas of our life, like where do we want to be financially? Where do we want to be relationally? Where do we want to be in our careers? Where do we want to be in our faith? If you can paint a picture for 5, 10, 15, 20, where you want to end up in all those arenas, that is a vision for your life or various visions for your life. And um, we talked about this idea that everyone ends up somewhere in life, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. And the reason why is because most people can't paint a picture for what their preferred future looks like and how they're going to get there. And so all of us are going to end up somewhere. We're all going to have um, different, different results in these arenas of our life, but the people who just don't like where they ended up are usually the people that don't have a vision for their life or a vision for a specific uh, arena of their life. And we began to talk about um, the different visions that we have. And so I'm going to clarify a little bit, <laughs> clarify vision, uh, clarify a little bit on a part of this, is we talked about a specific and a general vision last week. And if you weren't here, maybe you can go back and listen to it. It was really good. Uh, but uh, no, go back and listen to it because we talked about how we are supposed to find the vision for our life. And I think the way that we find vision is a combination of calling and conviction, so calling and conviction. So conviction is a firmly held belief. And the opening question of name someone famous that you have met, I think a better way to ask that question would have been maybe uh, what's the most successful or who's the most successful person that you've ever met? Because we all are going to define success in a certain way. And the way that we define success is the convictions, the beliefs that we have about ourselves and about the world and about how we're supposed to end up. And so if you were to ask the average person on the street, 
what a successful person looks like, they would probably define it through money or power or some kind of accomplishments that they have or acclaim or beauty. And this is the world's default position for success, is we are born into a world that says we want power and we want money and we want beauty and we want people to recognize us. And that's kind of our default position. All of us strive for those things unless we decide to redefine success. And very few people have the courage to redefine success and then to go and seek it. But as Christians, Jesus has defined success for us in a very different way. He says, if you want to be successful in my kingdom, in God's economy, you're going to have to look at success very different than everybody else does. Instead of being about money or power and respect, you will define success by, and I think we can summarize it in one word, which is faithfulness. If you are faithful, then you have become successful. So when King David was about to die, um, he gave his son Solomon the following advice. And I think this is a great example of biblical success. He says this. He says, do what the Lord your God commands and follow his teaching. Obey everything written in the law of Moses. Then you will be a success no matter what you do or where you go. Now, this is a direct uh, conflict between what the world says is successful and what the scripture defines as successful. The world says it's what you do, it's what you accomplish. And, and King David, who accomplished a lot, says it actually has nothing to do with what you accomplish or where you go or what you experience. The way that def- the success is defined is, it says this, if you follow and obey God. Simple, right? Follow and obey God. That's how we can become successful people. Well, um, biblical success is oftentimes difficult because, and I wrestle with this, and maybe you guys do too, is you are constantly trying to show other people that you are somebody, that you're successful. And so as you're striving for one version of success, what the Bible defines as success, they're striving for another one. And so when they look at you, they go, what a waste of time. You're doing nothing with your life. And you in your mind are going, I'm trying to be faithful, and yet everything is pulling me up. So here's the end result, is I know a lot of people who have made a lot of money. But I always wonder, now, you look successful to everybody else. You've got the car, you've got the house, you've got everything that you ever wanted, but are you successful in God's eyes? And then there's other people, and I, for some reason, I go to the extremes. I think about some of the missionaries that I know who live in poverty by choice, and they go and they're serving in the missions field, especially one lady who lives in India. And the world would say that you are living um, in poverty, so you are, you, you're a failure. And yet, I wonder in God's economy, if God goes, actually, she's the success, and the person who has all the money, they're the failure in my economy. And so there's two types of vision for our lives, uh, generic and specific. This general vision is the one that the scripture lays out for all believers. It says, if you're a Christian, this is what a successful life looks like. And it really is about following Jesus, becoming more like him, and and making sure our priorities are in in line. So the first priority is to love God, second, to love others, and then we're supposed to uh, uh, be in community, be in relationships. And so we are going to practically spell this out. This would be about loving God, and then if you're married, loving your spouse, and then if you have kids, loving them, and then loving your, your family, and then coming to church and being a part of that community. And so we can see um, that there is this, this general call on all of our lives for what a successful life looks like. But then there's this other part, and this is the part that we're going to be focusing in the next few weeks is this specific vision for our life, is what does it look like for us as individuals to answer God's call on our life? Because the scripture says that we have been planned 
before we were even born with a purpose. And so the analogy, or I guess the, the metaphor that I like to use is the blank canvas versus coloring book. It's the one that makes sense in my mind. Is everybody says your life is a blank canvas, go out, paint this picture, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. The Bible says your life is a coloring book. God has already outlined what it's going to look like. He has specific purposes in mind, and your job is to not screw it up, to color inside the lines, to be a good steward of what God has for you. And so we, uh, we jumped into the, bless you, uh, we jumped into uh, the book of Nehemiah last week. And by the way, um, everybody likes to jump into the specific purpose, like, what does God want from me? You know, does he want me to be like a superhero? Like, what does he exactly want for my life? And we just got to remember that the scripture has given us everything that we need in order to be successful in, as a Christian. And that's the main priority because unless you're successful in the general calling on your life to love Jesus and follow him, you'll never be successful on the specific calling for your life. You're never going to be like a horrible person, but like fulfill your specific person. It's always going to be if you're following God, this is the faithfulness, if you're following God, then he will allow you to be successful in your specific verse, which we'll talk more about. Anyway, so last week, book of Nehemiah, written 400 years after David and Solomon, about 445 BC. We know that Nehemiah, he's a Jew. He lives under the Persian king, uh, the empire. He's serving the Persian king. And so they're kind of slaves. And some of them got to live uh, under Persian rule. Some of them got to live under Persian rule in Jerusalem. And he hears a report that things are not going well in Jerusalem, which is God's promised land. These are his people. And he hears that this thing has been burned down and it's not going well. And so he gets really bummed. And we begin to see that he is a burden and a passion to go and see Jerusalem, the city of his forefathers, to be rebuilt. And so we're going to jump in today and we're going to find out what exactly does he do once he realizes, I need to do something, that God has given me opportunities and he's given me a burden and a passion to do this. Now, let's pause. In your mind, quickly, think about what are you burdened with and what are you impassioned by? What are you burdened with and what are you impassioned by? So a couple of the, the clues could be, when you look at something in the world and you say, this should not be, I look at this, I go, I just, it has to be better. Things have to be better than this. And it's not just this. No, you just, you feel your heartstrings being pulled. And you say, this should not be. Or the converse of this would be, I think that the world could be better if. I think that the world could be better if. Those might be some burdens, some passions. What is something that you would do that if money were no object, what would you do with your day? After you've gone on all the vacations and all that kind of stuff, you got $50 million in the bank, what are you going to do? Okay, so you've, you've enjoyed all, you, you've eaten everything you can eat, you've enjoyed, you've taken, what are you going to do now? Whatever you gravitate towards is probably the thing that, you would, uh, that you're most impassioned by. So what does Nehemiah uh, do once he knows what his calling is, this thing that God has set up for him to do? And this may surprise you a little bit. The next step that Nehemiah does when he knows that God is calling him to this specific thing is he does nothing, which is so countercultural to what we've been taught, right? We're like, we're, we're supposed to go, we're supposed to push, we're supposed to run. And yet Nehemiah, once he knows what he's supposed to do, and he feels like God is calling him to go and help rebuild this city, he does nothing. And so here's a couple reasons why. One, because he had to let the vision brew and develop within him. See, vision is always going to um, require action, but it's not necessarily immediate action. God will mature this vision in us, and if you miss this step, you are going to have what's called a preemie vision. 
So as you guys know, my wife is having our third child, and, uh, and it was funny, we were driving two days ago, and she said, uh, Sienna is in the back seat, and she's talking to Amy, and she says, hey, mom, um, is the baby going to come soon? Amy says, no, I, it better not come soon, because that could be a real problem. And uh, Sienna responds, oh yeah, because it's got to cook a little bit longer, huh? <laughs> like, yeah, I guess that's sort of right. Uh, but that's, that's exactly what it's talking about. Is if you birth a vision too early, it's going to be a preemie vision. You're not going to have it fully developed yet. You've got, to, you've got to sit on it for a little bit. You've got to think about it. You've got to let it brew for a little while because just because you have a good idea and you think, ooh, this might be it, doesn't mean that you have to jump into action right away. You've got to let that develop for a little bit. You've got to let it become a full, uh, a, a full vision. So I see young people do this all the time is we're easily excited. And so whenever we have a good idea, we go, that's it. I'm going to be a billionaire. You know, I need to go out and try this. Or like, ooh, I feel really bad. And so I need to go start this like ministry or this nonprofit or this whatever. And I love that passion. That's awesome. And I am so guilty of this. But... The problem is most people, they go and they start and they run out of steam very quickly or they run into hurdles that they weren't anticipating because they didn't let the vision brew for a little while. They didn't let it develop until they knew exactly where they were supposed to go. And so time allows us to distinguish between a good idea and a God idea. See, I, I don't know about you, but uh, my brain goes about a thousand miles an hour. And so I have, about a, I have what I consider... My wife does not think they are, but I consider them good ideas all the time. Like, it will be almost once a week I'll call her and be like, I got it. I know. I got it. I got it. We're going to be rich. You know, or like, this ministry is going to be awesome or whatever it is. And I have all of these, what I believe to be good ideas. The problem is, is that if we pursue every good idea, we are going to miss the one that's from God, the God idea. And so there's two distinctions between good ideas and God ideas. Number one, a God-ordained vision will eventually feel like a moral imperative. So you will have this passion or even this burden. And as you let the vision for this thing develop over time, and as you think about it, and as you pray about it, it will begin to pull at your heart, and you can't not do this thing. So I, I think my dad is a great example of this, is he felt this call in his life to start a church. And he was denied the first time that he approached the senior pastor when he wanted to go plant. And they said, no, no, I don't think it's a good idea. You're not ready. And so he went back and for years he prayed about this and thought about this until he felt like, you know what? I feel as if I am, um, I'm doing something wrong if I don't go and plant this church because there is this moral element to a God-sized vision in which you can't walk away from, or at least if you do walk away from it, you feel guilty. The second is this is a God-ordained vision will be in line with what God is up to in the world. And so if you think about it, God has got this huge puzzle going, and he's got all these puzzle pieces, and we can't really make sense of it because he's the one that sees the picture, but he's got all these puzzle pieces, and he's going to use whatever your vision is, however big or small you may think it is, he's going to have that be a part of the puzzle that he's putting together. And so if it doesn't fit with what God is doing in the world, it's probably not from him. It's probably an idea that you had that might be a good idea, it might be something else, but if it doesn't fit within what God's doing in the world, it's not from him. And so if you think about Nehemiah's vision, Nehemiah's vision was to go and rebuild this wall. Now, that doesn't seem like a God-sized thing, like to do construction, how is that, you know, God-honoring? I, I don't, but it was strategic because Israel was playing a part in the redemptive history of mankind. 
And so him going and rebuilding this wall was not just him going and stacking some bricks. No, 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 no. It was about what God had been doing and was going to do in the world. And so he got to play just a little piece of the puzzle, a little part of what God was up to. And there may seem like a contradiction between, or no connection between um, what you are called to do and what God is doing in the world. But if God can use a person to rebuild a wall to, to affect salvation history, I think whatever our calling might be, um, there is for sure a, a connection. And the thing is, when we wait and we allow God to prepare within us this vision, uh, a few things happen. One, he prepares our skills. See, God sees what you are going to do in the future, what your job is going to look like, what your family is going to look like, what your marriage is going to look like. And he knows the skills that it's going to take in order for you to be successful at that thing. And if it were up to us, we would jump on it right now because we all think that we're awesome. We all think well, we deserve this job right now. You know what? What are you kidding? Me? It's like my, my kids. They believe that they can take care of themselves right now, but they have no clue what it takes to take care of themselves because they have to develop the skills. They don't even know what they don't know yet. Same thing is true of us, is we don't have our dream job yet because we don't have the skills required to be successful at that job. If that job were handed to us tomorrow, it would be a disaster. We would fail miserably. And so there are skills that we have to learn. There are skills that we have to develop. And as you look at the different characters in the scripture who God used in order to do some great movements and some great movements of God, we see the preparation that it took. And oftentimes, the longer the prep, the bigger the God-sized goal was going to be. And so Moses, for example, Moses, 40 years God prepped him in the desert for, for him to lead these people. 40 years, that is a long time. And all of the major Bible characters, we see that God prepared them. Even when it didn't make sense, they're probably in the desert just going, what am I doing out here? Like, I feel like God's calling me to something big, but right now it's just sheep. What am I doing? And yet God was creating skills in them. Oftentimes we don't see the connection between what God is doing in us in the moment and what he's preparing for us in, in advance. It seems so disconnected, right? You're a waiter, you're a waitress, you work at a dead-end job, and you're going, I feel like God is calling me to be this, to do this, and yet this is so disconnected for where I think I'm supposed to be. And yet it's only when we look back, if we're faithful, that we look back and we go, oh, I get it now. I get it. I needed to learn how to deal with people. I needed to learn how to do customer service. I needed to learn how to make these connections. I need, you know what? If I hadn't worked that front desk, then I would have never met this person. I don't know what the connection is going to be, but if, if we trust that we are being faithful to where God calls us right now, he is preparing us for the future. So if you look at Nehemiah's situation, Nehemiah is in the wrong city, he's doing the wrong job, and he's working for the wrong people because remember, he's still a slave at the end of the day, and yet each step along the way was God preparing him for something big that he was going to do, something that he would have never imagined, he could have never made up on his own. It seemed like everything was wrong. His, the whole scenario was wrong, and yet God went, nope, that's exactly where I want you because you don't even know what I'm going to call you to yet. You don't even know what I'm prepping you for. He's also preparing us, um, he's preparing the background. And so it may not even be that you are, are not ready for what God has for you. Maybe because this situation isn't ready yet. Maybe because the other players in this scenario aren't ready yet. It may be because the, the, the economy isn't ready yet. It may be because this market isn't ready yet. You don't know what the background that's happening um, that, that he's developing. 
So if you think about, and this is not a part of the story, but if you think about Nehemiah's situation, what's happening in the king's mind, right? Because maybe God is still preparing the king for this meeting that we're about to, we're about to find out about. And so although he's preparing Nehemiah, he's also preparing the king, and he's preparing some of the other people, and he's preparing what's going to be taking place in the city, in the hearts of the people in the city. And so God is working all of these things, and we're not, unfortunately, we're not privy to that information. He's also preparing our character and our faith. God may, uh, may have a vision for your life, and you may be ready to go, but your character and your faith are just not strong enough. And so for me as a pastor, this makes total sense. Because if God gave me my wildest dreams as a pastor, you know, and I could dream up what this church looks like and everything, I also have to realize that my character may not be able to sustain that kind of pressure yet. That I may look at the success and go, ooh, look at me, look how awesome I am. Or I may look at the the pressure that it takes and I may buckle under the pressure because I haven't developed the character yet enough. Or I may encounter some huge obstacles and my faith hasn't been developed enough. I haven't learned to trust God enough, and so I just crumble under those circumstances. And so God is preparing our our faith and our character along the way. And so the question is, what do we do in the meantime? And I feel like most of my life has been the meantime, right? This in-between time where it's like, I don't know, I don't remember who said this, but it's in between the dreaming and the coming true. And I always feel like I'm in this in-between time where I dream, I think about the future, and yet it's not here yet. And so what do we do in this in-between time? And this is probably where most of us are at. Nehemiah gives us great insight. He does two things. He, uh, He prays and he plans. He prays. He keeps looking forward to to who can make this happen. He keeps looking and putting his eyes towards God, and he says, okay, I am going to pray for two specific things. And the things that he prays for is opportunity and favor. First one is opportunity. He doesn't pray for miracles. He doesn't go, God, I just wish that you would make those bricks magically stack themselves and the wood cut itself and then hang itself as, as gates. Or I just, I just pray that we'd wake up and it would all be better. No, 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 no. Nehemiah prays specifically for opportunity. He says, God, allow me to be a part of the solution to this problem. Allow me to just be a tool in order to be used by you to fix what's happening here. And he also prays for favor. Uh, Oh, this is a great quote by Andy Stanley. He says, the difference between dreamer and visionary is dreamers dream of things being different. Visionaries envision themselves making the difference. I know a lot of dreamers who could tell you what's wrong with the world and why it would be better, but visionaries are saying, here's not only what's wrong with the world, but here's how I want to be a part of fixing it. He also uh, prays for favor. Um, He's going to have to go and talk to the most powerful man uh, probably in the world at that time. And this guy is not compassionate. He could put him to death just at the snap of his fingers. And so he says, God, I need you to work on the king's heart because it's not just all about what I can do. There's other players in this. In fact, these players are more crucial than I am. And so, Lord, I need you to soften his heart and to change it. And so for some of us, that's what we need to be praying as well, is we need to be praying for the people who have those resources, have that influence, have those opportunities that we're looking for. And we say, God, I pray that you would open up those doors. Here is who I want to become. Here's who I think you've made me to be and the job that you want me to pursue. And so open up those doors. Allow me to see the opportunities. And then when those opportunities come, allow me to have favor. Allow those people to see me and go, you know what? I want to give them a chance. So uh, the other thing that he does is he plans. He plans as if he has everything that he needs and what he will do. 
I'm not a planner. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a planner. My only plan is like lunch. That's about all I plan. And then that's my favorite thing to plan for. Other than that, and nap time. Other than that, that's it. That's all I like to plan for. But Nehemiah says, no, 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 no. You have to plan as if God is going to grant you all the things that you're asking for. So this goes back to the faith thing, right? Is if we're asking God, we're not just asking him and not believing that he's going to give it. We're asking him and then we're believing that he's going to provide us with the opportunity and resources. And so in, uh, in, in faith, we are going to plan and prep as if he's going to answer that prayer. And so Nehemiah begins to plan. And here's Nehemiah's plan. Step one. Convince the king to allow me to leave his service in order to rebuild the wall around a city that in years past posed a military threat to this area. That's bold. Step two, convince the king to lend financial support to the building project. So not only am I going to rebuild a city that was once your enemy, but I want you to pay for it. This is sounding familiar. You guys remember? No? Build the wall? Okay. All right. All right. All right. You guys are not, uh, not with it right now. Okay. Anyway, uh, step three, procure letters from the king to the governors in the surrounding areas, asking them to provide me a safe conduct along the way. Step four, work out a deal with Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, to procure enough lumber to build the city gates, as well as a home for me. Step five, ask the king for the title of governor of Judah. Step six, organize and equip the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And seven, begin construction. See, your, your plans aren't all that crazy anymore, right? His, his plans are huge. He is asking for huge, 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 huge opportunities and resources. And here's where uh, I think oftentimes our dreams die. The vision that we have when we believe God is calling us towards, this is where we die. Because this is the part between the dreaming and the coming true in which we feel the least amount of success. We feel successless. And it's during this stage that we confuse being uh, feeling unsuccessful because we confuse success with the rewards or fruits of success. And, and so here's where I'm at, and maybe this is where you're at too, is every day I evaluate my life and the different arenas of my life. And I get to certain areas of my life and I go, gosh, I am just failing miserably, right? I just suck at this. Why can't I get any better? Why, why am I not seeing any rewards? Why am I not seeing any growth? Why am I not having any progress in this area? And here's what I've begun to realize. And again, this message is more for me than you. And so if this makes no sense to you and you're like, oh, this is irrelevant, eh, it's not for you. It's for me anyway. So you become a pastor and preach your own message. Um, but I start to think about my life and I go, gosh, I'm just, I'm not doing it. It's not happening. And it's because I've confused being successful with seeing success and being faithful. And so if you look at, uh, for example, Jesus and his success in ministry, when did Jesus become successful? Was it when he died on a cross or no? was it when he rose again? How about when he did miracles? That was pretty cool. No, he taught some great lessons. He had a lot of followers around. When did Jesus become successful? You know when Jesus became successful? It was before he did any of those things. The moment that God said that Jesus was successful was the moment that he said yes to God's calling on his life. It was before he did any miracles. It was before he had all these followers. It was before he died and rose again. Before all of this, it was when he was being baptized by John the Baptist. And God says from heaven, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well 
pleased. He didn't do anything. All he did was say yes, and he was faithful to the calling that God had on his life. He didn't even do anything cool yet. And so that's a great learning for us is we are not successful when we accomplish our vision. We are successful each step that we are faithful. And so Nehemiah, he may have felt successful when he laid this final brick on the wall, but he was successful each step along the way. Every time that he said yes to God and what God was calling him to do, he was a success. And this is so important for us to remember, especially if we want to continue to survive. For me, at least, is I have to remember I am not successful the day that I see my dreams come true. I am successful every day I get up and I say, God, today is yours, and I want to be faithful to the call that you have on my life. I ask my dad this all the time. My dad, uh, obviously, if you don't know, he's a senior pastor here, and, and I ask him, Dad, do you feel successful? Like, you've done a lot. You know, you got thousands and thousands of people and tens of millions of dollars and buildings, and you've just done all these things, and you started at nothing, and wow, I would feel so successful. He's like, No. Are you kidding me? Because my dreams are way bigger than that. And so I'm not even close to where I, where I want to be. But he said, you know what makes me feel successful? It's just knowing I was faithful to the calling on my life. Because whatever amount of buildings or people or whatever, it's never going to be enough. The only thing that makes you feel successful is knowing that you said yes when God called. See, the same is going to be true for us. It doesn't matter if you make a billion dollars. It doesn't matter if you get your dream job. There's always going to be another mountain that's going to be bigger and that you want to climb. And the only way that you're ever going to feel successful is if you did what God called you to, if you were faithful. And so 99% of uh, my work feels successless. I don't feel like I did a whole lot. There's once in a blue moon where I go, oh, that was really cool. And then the next day it's, yeah, all right, well, the next thing. What are we going to do next? What's going to be the next big thing? And so I have decided, and this is a reminder for me and hopefully for you, that I can't ride that roller coaster anymore. I have to. I have to be faithful to the call and then find my success in that. Now, here's the crazy part, and this like popped into my mind when I was driving today, is um, God says that if we work hard and we are faithful, that he will reward us. And I always thought that that meant that we were going to see reward in the thing that we're striving for. So if it's my career, I'm going to get rewarded in my career. But I had this epiphany today. It's probably God, but I had this epiphany today. And I'm sure that this is true biblically. If not, Ryan can tell me afterward. But here's what I think is the rewards that God will give us when we work hard and we are faithful do not necessarily have a one-to-one correlation with what we are working towards. So let me explain this to you. I think about my work and I work really hard and, and yet I don't see the success that I would like to see oftentimes. But the weird thing is I've had incredible rewards in other areas of my life. I look at my marriage, I look at my kids, I even look at my finances, I look at uh, my, my relationships, and I go, wow, I have gotten so much in these areas, far more than I deserve. I have been greatly rewarded. And then I realized, you know, in God's economy, they're all connected. He's going to reward you, and your rewards may not be what you anticipated, but it might be better. Because I would never trade my relationship with my wife and my kids and even my parents and all the great things I have going on. I would never trade that for occupational success. And so the rewards, as I work hard and I'm faithful, don't have a one-to-one correlation. He's rewarded me in other areas. And that's not to say that he doesn't reward you directly as well. The converse is true, is you may think that you are 
working really, really hard, and you're seeing this progress in your life, but you're wondering why these other areas are, are falling apart. So I know lots of business students who do really well financially, and yet they're, they've got some sketchy business practices, and they wonder why their marriage is falling apart. And I go, don't you see that it's all related in God's economy? He can't bless your marriage as you're going over here doing some sketchy stuff in your business. But he can bless your marriage if you are faithful in your business, and he's going to be faithful to you in the other arenas as well. All right, this is a, this is a couple more parts. One is when we are looking at an insurmountable mountain that we're not sure how we're going to climb, we have to remember that the what always precedes the how. Is you're going to know what you're supposed to do before you know how you're going to do it. You know what God is calling you to, and you have no idea how it's going to happen. And so this is true of Nehemiah. He knew what he was supposed to do, fix the wall, but he had no clue how this is going to happen. And so we have to, um, we have to keep the vision alive as we think and as we see what we're supposed to do, but we don't know how we're going to get there because what God originates, he orchestrates. And so if it is a God vision, if he has put it on your life, this means that he is going to figure out how you're going to get there. And I often believe that the reason why God gives us these big visions for our life is because he wants to scare the crap out of us, right? Because there's, he wants to really, there's no way you're going to figure this out. There's no way you're going to make this happen. When I look at my future, I go, oh my, I am screwed unless God's a part of this. Because I can't figure this out. I'm not that likable, right? Like I don't, I can't, I don't have that many friends. I can't do this. I don't have that many talents or resources. It's just not going to happen. The only way it's going to happen is if God makes this happen. And that's where he likes us to be. He likes us to be in this place where we go, I'm not going to figure this out, so I just got to trust that God's called me to do this and that he's going to get me there. Vision also takes patience. So have you guys uh, seen this video of, uh, it's a guy named Simon Sinek, and he talks about millennials. And he's, uh, he talks about like how millennials um, are addicted to things. Have you seen this before? It was like super popular video, tens of millions of views. It went around Facebook for a while. Well, I watched the whole interview the other day. I felt I thought it was really interesting. And there was a little part which I think relates to what we're talking about here. And what he said is this. He says, when we look at our phones, and um, all of us are probably getting jitters right now because we want to look at our phones. When we look at our phones, what happens is we get a little shot of dopamine. So when we get a text or we check Facebook or Instagram or we do like a little, what's that, Snapchat story, okay, whatever the kids are doing these days. We do all these things. We get a little hit of dopamine, and you know, that's the same thing that happens when we uh, do drugs or we gamble or anything like that is we get a little hit of dopamine. And so what's happening is all of us have become addicts chemically. We, we have an addiction and it's addiction to our phones. And it's because every moment that we have in which we're not totally entertained and we kind of feel a little bit off and we have to maybe start to think about what's happening in our lives, we go, oh, I'm not thinking about that. <laughs> what's on Facebook? Oh, oh, what a loser. You know, like we just feel better about ourselves. He says that all of us have become addicted. And because of this, we've never learned how to deal with stress. We've never learned how to deal with our uneasiness. We've never learned how to deal with our boredom. And all of our relationships are becoming more and more shallow because we spend less and less time face-to-face where we're actually having conversations. And you know this is true. If you go to dinner before or after this or whatever, how many people have their cell phones, they're on their cell phones at dinner, and if there's a pause in the conversation, or this is my favorite, you're talking and they're looking down like this, I just want to go, no, how dare you? I'm right here. You know, like I should have thrown out of here. And it's because we get this little shot of dopamine and it makes us feel better. Now, you add to this the rest of our life that is full of instant gratification. We have instant everything. 
I made my kids dinner last night. It took me three minutes. Why? Instant mac and cheese, right? I didn't even have to pour it out and measure it. I literally put the water in there. I put it in the microwave, and then they're super healthy. And so we have instant everything. We have not only do we want things delivered, I want things delivered tomorrow, right? I want to go to sleep, and I want to wake up, and Amazon Prime better have that at my doorstep tomorrow. I can't wait another day, right? We literally started... I'm not going to tell you that. Okay. Um, okay, we started ordering toilet paper online. Is that weird? I don't know. We get boxes of toilet paper delivered to our door. Anyway, okay. Um, here's what Simon Sinek points out, though. He says, we have this addiction in which we can't let just ourselves be for a moment, and we have instant everything, and then we wonder why we're getting so frustrated in life. He talks about how he meets with millennials, people in their 20s and early 30s all the time, and they go, you know, I got my job, but I think I'm going to quit. Well, why are you going to quit? You know, it's just, I'm not, I'm not changing the world. It's like, what? You're 25. You're not going to change the world, you know? Like, and because we don't realize, because we live in an instant world in which we never have downtime, we never have to wait, that the things that are most important in life are going to take a lot of time and a lot of perseverance. We have to learn patience. I'm horrible at this. I'm not patient for anything. And yet, if we want to accomplish these God-given visions in our life, we have to learn patience. We have to learn to be okay in the in-between time. We have to learn how to be faithful even when it feels like we're not moving. I'm preaching to myself right now, okay? We have to learn to be patient in those in-between moments. And then the fuel for this whole thing has got to be faith. Biblical faith is synonymous with trust, and so people like to characterize biblical faith as blind faith. You just believe because you want to believe because it makes you feel better. No, no, no. Biblical faith is more like uh, the faith that I have in my wife. I have faith in her because I trust her. That's the same thing I have in God is I believe in God because I trust him, not I believe he exists out there in the ether. It's because I trust the character of God. And so when we are attempting these God-sized visions, it's going to take big faith. So last week I watched a video on um, some of the CEOs and how they became successful and their keys to success. And a constant thread, a theme that went through the whole thing was they all said that you have to have faith that it's going to happen. And I went, how interesting. These people, I think many of them were secular people, didn't believe in God, and yet they said you have to have faith that it's going to take place. And I always want to ask, faith in what? That the stars are going to align? You know, like what, what exactly do you have faith in? But as Christians, we get to have not just faith for faith's sake, we get to have faith because the God who controls everything has called us to it. And so we can have faith that he's going to, uh, that he's going to make it happen. So here, let me finish the story with Nehemiah, or at least this section really quick. Uh, Nehemiah was bringing the uh, wine to the king. And as he walks in, the king notices that he's sad. And this is like a big no-no, because if you were sad in front of the king and he didn't like it, he'd be like, chop his head off. You know, I, don't, I want nothing. Get him out of here. But he walks in. This is the first time he's ever done this. He walks in, and he just can't hide his emotion anymore. And he walks into the king to give him his wine, and the, he notices he's sad. And so the king says this. He says, what's, uh, what's going on? What's wrong? And Nehemiah begins to cast his vision. God has put this on my heart, my people, and the wall, it's broken down, and it's a mess. And so then the king responds, not negatively, and this is a huge request, but he says, well, what do you want me to do? And here's what it says in 
Nehemiah uh, 2, 7 through it says this, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the province of uh, beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, and keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the houses to which I will go. And then he says this, and the king granted them to me. So he had the speech prepared. He knew because remember, he planned, he prayed, he was looking for opportunities. And in that moment, when that opportunity was given to him, because he was faithful, because he had planned, because he knew what God was calling him to do and he was ready to go once God opened that door, he had his speech ready. He didn't just go, I don't know, man, the city's oh, it's messy, dude. We should for sure fix that. No, no, no. He goes, boom, here's what I need. One, two, three, four, five. And he has an entire plan ready to go. And then God grants him his request, and here's what he does, and do not miss this, because all of us are at the beginning of our careers, and I think many of us will probably be pretty successful and we'll see great things in our life, but don't miss this part. Once Nehemiah sees his vision start to materialize, and he's given what he, he wants, he doesn't forget who gave him it in the first place. Because we can become busy with our blessings, right? Our business takes off, our career takes off, we land that job, we get that account, whatever it may be, and we start to get busy and we forget who gave that to us. And so what he does here is he says this. He says, and the king granted them to me. Why? Because the good hand of God was on me. He was quick to give God credit. See, he knew where the blessings came from. He knew who opened the door of opportunity. He knew who gave him those talents and those resources. And so one of the great things about us as we begin our careers and we're going to chase these God-given visions for our life and do great things for him, we have to always remember who the one gave it to us, who gave us these resources, these opportunities, and these gifts. And at the end of the day, we have to remember to turn back to God and say, it's only because of your goodness that I get to do any of this stuff. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for how good you are to us. Uh, Lord God, we are, uh, many of us are in this in-between place between the dreaming and the coming true, and it is hard to be patient. It's hard to be faithful. It's incredibly, uh, incredibly tiring, and sometimes uh, it's almost embarrassing because as we see other people succeed and we see other people's careers take off or their lives start to to move forward, and we just go, when is it my turn? Um, Lord God, we just pray that we would continue to be faithful, and we would trust that you have, um, you have an incredible vision for our life, and you just call us to work hard and to continue to trust in you. And so that's what we dedicate to do. And in the end, uh, we will gladly give praise back to uh, the one who has given us these gifts. Lord, we love you, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.